Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. Let's pray together. Father, we are your people. You have redeemed us. You have bought us back with the precious blood of Jesus, and we are yours, and we belong to you. And so we come and we readily confess that you are our God, you are our Lord, you are our master. And we desire to serve you. The psalmist says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Father, the psalmist understands that you have power over our hearts. You can unite our hearts so that we might walk in obedience before you. And you know everything about our hearts. You can search them out. You know our interiors. You know the darkest recesses of our hearts. Nothing is hidden from your sight. You see all of it. And not only do you see all of our hearts, but you are the great wonder worker of salvation. You can change the hardest of hearts and make it soft and and pliable. You can take a heart of of stone and remove it and and take and put in a, a heart of beating flesh. And so, Father, you know our hearts. You know how divided they are. We, we serve you one moment and then the next we, we serve some idol of our heart. We, we say one thing with our mouth and then the next we, we contradict it. And you know our distractions, the distractions of our hearts. You know how much of a, a, a tough time we have of just turning our hearts to you and and focusing on you and your words. We're distracted by the most mundane things. But we take joy in this, that you are a God who has power over our hearts. You can change them and mold them. And this is what the promise of the new covenant is, that we have new hearts now in and through Jesus. And so we rejoice that you have brought us into this new covenant and you've taken away this old heart. And now that we can obey you, we we do so with gladness. And we ask you this morning, oh, would you carry on this work even farther? Father, there are so many sins lurking in our hearts. We pray this morning that by your grace, you would take hold of our hearts and that you you would change them so that from the heart we might be able to please you and enjoy you and worship you. 
And Father, we trust this morning that as we have been singing, as we have been praying, and as we are about to receive your word, that you are at work doing this very thing for us. You're changing us and molding us and and shaping us. And so we pray, come and shape and mold us and, and change us. We desire your work. That's why we have gathered today. That's why we're praying right now. That's why we're going to open your word, that you would come and have your way with us. And so please do this. Would you help us hear your word this morning? Would you help us receive your word? Be pleased to do this. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, would you, would you open up your Bibles this morning and turn them to the book of 1 Thessalonians? Our sermon text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. This is our third week in this new series as we're just getting acquainted with this letter. Paul, in our first sermon in chapter 1, was giving thanks for the work of God in the Thessalonians, confirming them and further establishing them in their faith. And now Paul is going to begin talking about himself and his ministry to them. So hear God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 2. Eight. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So... Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. Amen. Well, I want to start off this morning, our sermon on these verses in chapter 2, with a, with a story. So in 1839... A man by the name of Robert Murray McShane was sent off by the Church of Scotland to scout out the Holy Land, the land of Israel, for missionary endeavors. And this meant something for McShane. He was a pastor of a church in in a town of Dundee, and it meant that he would have to leave his people for a period of about six months to go off and do this exploratory Work. And so all sorts of preparations were needed, preparations for the trip to Israel and, and preparations for the people who were being left behind in Dundee. And so in McShane's stead, a, a young man fresh to the ministry, William Burns, just 24 years old, was to replace McShane for those six months. 
And as McShane departed on his trip, he wrote and encouraged Burns with these very happy, encouraging words. He wrote to him saying, I hope you may be a thousand times more blessed among them than ever I was. Perhaps there are many souls that would have never been saved under my ministry who may be touched under yours. And so McShane left and the six months were played out. And during those six months, a story of extremes was played out. McShane's trip to Israel was difficult. He was often sick at some points near death. His body wasn't built for the extremes of traveling across all the geographical area that they needed to. However, back in Dundee, while all of this was going on for McShane, there was a revival of sorts. Through the ministry of William Burns, this young and experienced preacher, only 24 years old, remarkable changes were taking place. Whole families were converted as the word was preached. The church was bursting at the seams. They couldn't fit any more people into the building. Prayer meetings were popping up all over the place, and again and again and again the word was preached, and it was eagerly received. And all of these good things happened in Dundee, and McShane didn't know a shred about it while he was traveling in the Holy Land. And in fact, it wasn't until McShane was within sight of home, until he learned first about what had gone on during his absence from Dundee. And so here's the question. How would McShane react to the surprise of blessing? And to be more specific, how would McShane react to the instrument of that blessing, William Burns? Envy, jealousy, resentment, bitterness, sadly all of those things make perfect sense to us. Just think about it. McShane had labored in Dundee doing the hard work of ministry and then while he was away, God blessed the people remarkably. While he was sick and suffering in a foreign land, a younger man, a more experienced man, a man only 24 years old, came into his church and reaped the tremendous results of ministry. And we know from the way our own hearts work that it's one thing to say, I hope you may be a thousand times more blessed among them than ever I was, but it's an altogether different thing to actually be happy, to actually rejoice when that happens to you. So how did McShane react to all of this? Well, he rejoiced. He was recorded to say among his people something like this, I have no desire but the salvation of my people by whatever instrument. In fact, he would go on and write a letter to William Burns and he would say this in private conversation to him, my dear brother, I shall never be able to thank you for all your labors among the precious souls committed to me. And what is worse, I can never thank God fully for his kindness and grace, which every day appears to me more remarkable. He has answered prayer to me in all that has happened here in a way which I have never told anyone. As we think about all of this, this whole situation between McShane and Burns could have gone sideways a million different ways. Because of envy, because of jealousy, because of resentment and bitterness, there could have been factions and splits, there could have been quarrels and fights, but nothing like that happened because by God's grace and God's help, McShane had long labored to destroy this heart of sin, this heart of self-interest that prizes self above all else. And what's interesting about McShane is he kept a journal, and in his journal before this happened we find the warfare against self 
interest taking place in his heart. He says in one spot, If I am to go to the heathen to speak of the unsearchable riches of Christ, the one thing must be given to me to be out of reach of the baneful influence of esteem or contempt. If worldly motives go with me, I shall never convert a soul and shall lose my own in the labor. He said in another spot, I fear the love of applause. May God keep me from preaching myself instead of Christ crucified. And one more. He said, I see a man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake. Until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. Lord, give me this. And what happened? The Lord did give him that. When the blessing came and it came upon William Burns and his people through William Burns, he was able to rejoice. And I start with this story because there's a lesson to be learned from this story for us. If our service to Jesus is to count for anything, if our ministry is to bear the sort of fruit that pleases God, we must do this. We must crucify sinful self-interest. That part of us that longs for the applause of our peers, that part of us that craves for more money, more possessions, more stuff, that part of us that seeks more comfort, that part of us that fears what everybody thinks about us and, and longs for the approval of man, that part of us has to die. And as we think about the text we read this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that is what Paul's concern is. In these eight verses, Paul, without a hint of reservation, opens wide his heart to the Thessalonians. And with candidness, he, he, he specifies the motivations of his heart. As we look at these words, he, he reveals his vertical motivations. Why is he doing ministry? Verse 4, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And there, there's a horizontal motivation as well. From that vertical motivation, we find verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And the reason that Paul opens up his heart to us in these verses is not to defend himself, or to pat himself on the back in some self-aggrandizing way, but he opens his heart up to us that we might see it and that we might learn to imitate him and walk in the same path that he walked. Paul's desire is that these words among the Thessalonians would teach them to please God in all that they do. And that's what these words are here for us that we might learn to please God in all that we do. And so self-interest must be crucified if our work is to please Jesus. And self-interest must be crucified because self-interest works as a pollutant in our lives. Whatever self-interest touch, it spoils and perverts and twists. And it does this even to the best things like, like serving Jesus. Just think about all the good things we can set our hands to in ministry. We can invite a friend out for a coffee and we can sit down with them and pray for them and encourage them. We can teach a Sunday school class. We can go to small group. We can preach a sermon. But if self-interest is at work in these things, we can even twist these good things into bad things. 
And so as Paul begins chapter 2, he asserts very boldly that he did not turn his ministry into something perverted, twisted, or spoiled. Verse 1, he says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And Paul's ministry wasn't turned into something perverted and twisted because why? He stoutly resisted the temptations of self-interest. And if you're looking at your Bibles this morning, you can go down to verses 5 and 6. And Paul lists off three temptations of self-interest there. He writes this. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We just need to slow down here and study the temptations of self-interest that Paul refused. So the first temptation that Paul refused was flattery. What does that mean? Well, it means that he didn't heap up words of insincere praise. He didn't speak false compliments. His speech wasn't smooth and and slick. And as we think about it, this would have been a temptation for Paul as he came to Thessalonica. Paul had just come from Philippi beforehand, and there in Philippi he was beaten with rods and publicly shamed for preaching Jesus. And as we think about it, the open word of the gospel is, as Paul preached the gospel in Philippi, it brought an immense amount of pain into his life, physical and emotional. And when something like that happens, immediately following that, temptation springs. And it goes something like this. Maybe I should change my strategy. Maybe instead of openly preaching the gospel of Jesus, I should butter these folks up a bit beforehand. Maybe I should make sure they're on my side before I set forth the hard edge of the gospel that Jesus is Lord and that there are no other gods. Maybe I shouldn't make such strong statements about the gospel and instead be a bit more diplomatic in my ministry and in my preaching. Maybe, maybe I should set aside the hard edge of the gospel altogether and tell these folks something they would like to hear. And they would take me in and they would love me and they would want me to be here with them. And we get this because this instinct is wired into all of us. When your hand is slapped, what do you do? You stop doing what you were doing. When you get a harsh reprimand, your behavior changes. And we are tempted all the time to change our behavior to either avoid the scorn of others or to gain the approval of others. And flattery is just an overt and over-the-top talk attempt to to do that. So what did Paul do with this temptation before him? Well, in verse 2, Paul says this, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul is telling us, I didn't change my behavior at all. Rather, I doubled down. I put all of my chips, pushing them all into the center of the table, I preached boldly and joyfully, refusing to cut any corners or pull back an inch. I boldly preached the gospel. So that's the first temptation that Paul resisted, flattery. And we find a second in verses 5 and 6. And the second temptation that Paul resisted was the temptation of greed. Paul didn't go to Thessalonica and minister among the Thessalonians to make a buck. He didn't go there to take up an offering, an offering that would go directly into his back pocket to enrich himself. And many in the ancient world did this. They traveled around, moving from city to city, speaking and making friends, all for the sake 
to make a buck. And when they would wear out their welcome in one place, they would leech off a group after a period of time and either draining them or these people getting sick of them, they would move on to the next city and then continue to drain these people. And as we think about it, not much has changed in this regard. The only thing that has changed is you don't have to move from city to city. With the advent of the internet and YouTube and other platforms, these grifters can just come right into our our homes. And these sorts of people work to produce content to why? To gain an audience, to get views and audience. And, And why? So to make money for themselves. But here is Paul, and he tells us that he carefully guarded himself from this charge. He conducted himself in such a way that no one could impute his motives with greed. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Paul tells us that he never took from the Thessalonians. Rather, when he came among them, he provided for himself by his own hands. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In fact, as Paul traveled from city to city, planting churches and preaching the gospel, he not only provided for himself as he worked, and not only for those who were with him, but he worked hard so that he might be able to give some money away to others. Acts chapter 20, verses 33 through 35, Paul says this, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, And to those who are with me, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul resisted the temptation of greed. His ministry wasn't about taking, it was about giving. And there's one more temptation in verses 5 and 6 that we have to take notice of. And that's the temptation of glory. Paul didn't go to Thessalonica to make a name for himself or to gather a people around him or to create a following of Paul or to get praise from human beings. Now, just because Paul was an apostle of Jesus and he was laboring in the church of God among the people of God doesn't mean that he was naturally immune from such temptations like these. As we think about it, Paul's position as an apostle of Jesus was inherently dangerous. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people had come to know the Lord Jesus through his ministry. And all of these people would have naturally looked to him for direction and guidance. And even though Paul was often persecuted, moving from town to town, he still had this influence over the churches of God. And as you think about all of these factors, it would have been so easy to let all of these things go straight to his head. He could have easily acted as someone important in the church. He could have came to the church and thrown his weight around. I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must listen to me. You must do what I want. I have demands of you. And in fact, there's good evidence that in the early church, even the churches that Paul planted, that there were people who were clamoring for this kind of of leadership. They wanted a man who sought glory and who was powerful like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul tells us that there are people who are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. But this isn't how Paul acted among the Thessalonians. Verse 7, he says, but we were gentle among you. There's good reason to read this verse differently. In your Bibles, if you're looking there, you should find a footnote next to the word gentle. And the footnote provides an alternate reading like this. But we became as infants among you. 
but we became as infants among you. And the imagery is so jarring. Here is Paul, a full-grown man, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he compares his conduct in ministry to that of an infant. No pretension, no grandiosity, no posturing. We were an infant among you. And Paul goes on in verse 7, and he couples this with another jarring image. He says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Again, Paul, a full-grown man, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, compares his ministry to that of breastfeeding. That's Paul's relationship with these people. No self-seeking, no vainglory, no vanity. And so we see that Paul resisted the temptation of glory. So Paul's conduct among the Thessalonians was exemplary. When he came among the Thessalonians, he said no to all the temptations of self-interest. Flattery knocked at the door and Paul said no. Greed came calling and he refused it. Glory gave it a try and Paul wouldn't have a go with it at all. And Paul sets all of this before us, laying out this path that he walked for a very simple reason. That we as God's people would learn to walk in it. That we as God's people would see these temptations and see them for what they are and say no to all the forms of self-interest that work in our hearts, whether that be glory or greed or flattery. But here we encounter a big problem, don't we? The problem isn't the example that Paul gives us. The example is so clear and straightforward. It's so helpful But the problem is what? The problem is us. Just think about it. Self-interest is stuck to us. It's like the skin on our bodies. We can never flee it. Wherever we go, sinful desire pops up. Whenever we set to work, even in holy and godly things, self-interest is there and we're plagued by its temptations. What is this going to cost me? What am I going to get out of this? What are people going to think about this? What are people going to think about me? Why don't they appreciate me more? Why don't they mention my name? Why aren't they taking notice of me? Why am I not gaining what I want to gain out of this? Whenever we set to work, self-interest comes after us. It's stuck to us. So is there any help for us? as we fight self-interest. And I think there is in these eight verses. Look again with me at verses one through eight. There is a word repeated in verses one through eight again and again. It's a very simple word. And because it's so simple, we often just skim past it and don't even see it and let it register in our minds. Paul says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. He goes on to say, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. God is witness. What is the word? It's only three letters long. It's God. Embedded in Paul's exemplary conduct is God himself. How could Paul refuse the temptations of self-interest? It's God. God was near and close to Paul, empowering him and aiding him. God was big and powerful and grand to Paul. God was all-consuming and ever-important to Paul. Paul did all that he did in his ministry in the presence of God. And if we are to walk in the path that Paul sets before us, we must walk with with the God that Paul walked with. 
That's the answer to this question. We must walk with Paul's God. So I want to point out each occurrence of God in verses 1 through 8 because each occurrence gives us specific help to fight against self-interest. And so the first occurrence of God in our verses in verse 2, Paul says, we had boldness in our God. And so we know when Paul came among the Thessalonians, he preached boldly. He didn't waver in conflict. He didn't grow timid or shy. He didn't step back from public preaching. Rather, his preaching, even in conflict, was done with freedom and excitement and joy. And Paul was able to preach like this, not because he was some sort of madman, not because his pain receptors had become numb to all of the pain that was coming at him, but because of this, God was empowering him. God was supplying strength and courage to his heart. He says, we had boldness in our God. And here is such a joyous truth to be learned from verse 2. Our God is a God who provides great help. We have a God who gives us help. He is a God who makes the weak strong and the terrified bold. He is a God who makes the simple wise and who gives his people words that no one can withstand. He is a God who faithfully stands by his people when no one else will and he upholds them with his righteous, omnipotent hands. We have a God who gives great help. And so I ask you this morning, before you set to work, especially work of ministry, do you go to God and ask him for help? Do you seek him for strength and boldness, wisdom and words, courage? And when you are in the midst of your work, laboring away, do you expect to find God's help? Is your work characterized by the word faith? And when you are done with work, do you return all that happened to God in thanksgiving? Our God is a God who provides help, and, and Paul is teaching us. Seek God for his help. And here's the thing. I think if we were to seek God's face more before our work, trusting in our work, and after our work, returning it to him in thanksgiving, we would see such an advance in self against self-interest in our lives and our hearts. Prayer to God, dependence on God, kills self-interest. And we see the fruit of it in Paul's life. He found strength in God. Paul continues on in verse 2. He says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. So Paul Paul has been supplied courage and strength to preach a message, and that message is the gospel of God. And just that little phrase is worth our thinking. What does it mean? Well, it means, first of all, that Paul didn't invest the message he preached. Where did he get this gospel of God? He got it from God himself. It was the gospel of God. Nor was the message he preached about himself. It was all about God. It was what God had done in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was the gospel of God. And what we see here is that this little, little phrase, gospel of God, frees us. Just think about it for a moment. Christian, when you engage in ministry, you don't have to invent the message. 
Faithful ministry is not a matter of shrewd ingenuity. We have the gospel of God. Nor do you have to be anything special or important, for you're not called to speak about yourself. Rather, we are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, what God has done in and through Jesus. And we see the fruit of this in Paul's life. He embraced the gospel of God and he took the gospel of God and he set it in the middle of his ministry. Focusing on the gospel of God always and it freed him from self-interest. I've received this message from God and I preach this message about God. And if we are to find likewise freedom... We are to find similar freedom. We must do the same thing. We must take the gospel of God and, and put it in the center of our lives. This message is from God. And it's not about me or what I have done. It's about what God has done in and through Jesus. Verse 4. Paul says, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but God who tests our hearts. Verse 5. God is witness. Paul is telling us that he served in the presence of God. For Paul, God wasn't distant or remote, far removed from his work and the daily going on of his life. No, Paul viewed his whole ministry in light of God. It was God who gave him the gospel. It was God who commissioned him to be an apostle. Even more, it was God who was watching over all that he did, scouring and searching his heart, knowing everything that was going on. And Paul knew that nothing, not even the hidden motivations of his heart, were hidden from the eye of God. What we see Paul doing here is he's reckoning with God's knowledge of him. He's reckoning with God's near presence. And what is happening in Paul's life? We see the fruit of it. Self-interest shrivels up. This knowledge of God is like a light that shines into dark places and exposes the dark parts of our hearts. And that light pushes and drives back self-interest. And there's nothing as mortifying as this, knowing that our God sees everything in our hearts. Our neighbors, they can't see into our hearts and know why we do what we do. They can see fruits of our actions at times. But they can't see into us. They can't probe our hearts. But our God does. He knows exactly why we're doing what we're doing. He perfectly can see it. And if we are faithful to apply this knowledge to ourselves, it's like light coming into a dark place, pushing out self-interest from us. Now, as we think about what Paul says in verse 4 and in verse 5, we have to be really careful. What Paul says sobers us up, and we should be sober. God tests our hearts, and that is good. But we have to look again at Paul, lest we misunderstand him. This knowledge about God and what God is doing in his life, searching him, did not make Paul anxious. We don't find Paul scurrying about in chapter 2, trying to earn the, the favor and acceptance of God. This whole passage is marked by what? It's marked by joy. Paul labors to please God, not as an employee who is trying to keep his job. Paul is laboring to please God, not as an athlete who's worried about getting cut from the team. Paul labors in light of the gospel he preached. He labors to please God as one justified and approved by God through the blood of Jesus. He labors as one who is forgiven by God and called by God into his service. He labors as one who is loved by God. He labors ultimately as a son and child of God. 
And it is here we find the greatest motivation of all to kill self-interest and to resist all of these temptations. We labor to please God in all that we do because why? We have been justified by God through the blood of Jesus. We labor to please God in all that we do, even in the hidden recesses of our hearts, because he has forgiven us and he has called us to himself and he has given to each one of us a ministry of service. We labor to please him. Why? Because he has adopted us into his family and he has called us sons and daughters of God. We labor to please God because he has loved us and we are convinced of his love. And so we see, as we look at these verses, that Paul has revealed to us his heart. He was a man who fought against self-interest and he fought against self-interest. Whether that be flattery or greed or glory, with God and for God. And so what Paul does in this passage is he calls us into the battle. We're already in the battle, but he calls us into it to pursue it. He says, dear Christians, kill self-interest. Refuse the temptations of greed and glory and flattery. And rather do this, please God, for God will give you help even more because God has brought you into his family, redeeming you from your sin, even more because God is your reward. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for this word. You know our hearts. You know them intimately. And we ask now that you would take this word of the gospel this word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you would press it into our hearts and that even now you would change us. Oh, that we might live to please you and you alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.